Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 93, recorded August 9th, 2012. Our 34th episode of the 90s. And they keep counting down, yes. So today we're going to cover issue number 40, 41, 42 of The Next Generation. Excellent. And these are a continuation of last Next Generation episode in which uh, there is a large Death Star type machine and the, some of the crew is a, trapped aboard it. Right. So was, was that, I think it was the first issue in the previous recording, so now we're doing the second one? That's right. Okay, so we're, we're not horribly far into it. Uh, but this is a multi-multi-parter, so it still does not resolve at the end of these three issues. That's right. I believe we'll be finishing this series or this story when we do the next generation episode. The next next generation episode. There you go. Although, I have some theories that I think might play out, which I won't, I suppose I won't go into, but maybe I will. Yeah, let's talk about them after we finish these. Sounds good. So without any further ado, I'll just jump into issue 41. Let's do it. And of course I mean issue number 40, because you'll be doing 41 here in a second. So, issue number 40 came out in November 1992. Writer is Michael Jan Friedman. Breakouts, Peter Krause. Finishes, Pablo Marcos. Letterer, Bob Panaha. Colorist, Tom McCraw. And editor is Alan Gold. So, the cover starts off with a picture of the Enterprise-D surrounded by several smaller attack vessels. And we can see that it's in the process of a saucer separation. All of the ships are in orbit of the Death Star-looking thing from last episode, or issue. And the caption reads, An Attack on Two Fronts. The story starts off with Data, Jordy, and Worf still stranded aboard the Death Star machine that they got stuck on last issue. Suddenly, their communications with the Enterprisers cut off. Data suspects that this is due to the machinery around them. In space above the station, the Enterprise is surrounded by several smaller Stazen ships. The only encounter the Federation has had with the Stazen is the USS Grissom, in which young Lieutenant Oliver has first-hand experience with. She explains that the Stazen treat other life forms as if they were insects and crush them underfoot. The captain of one of these vessels contacts Picard. He is named Ramond. Once he is on the view screen, we see that Lieutenant Oliver's comment is a little funny because the Stazen are an insectoid race, looking much like a beetle. Ramond informs the captain that they have entered Stazen space and that the Enterprise must depart before the situation escalates. Picard states that he would be very interested in discussing the basis for Ramond's claim on this area of space. Ramon says that only Stazon need to be concerned with Stazon matters and their claims. Lieutenant Oliver jumps up and yells that they need to escape while they can. Picard immediately puts her in her place. So at this point it should be assumed that the communications between the two ships has been severed because Riker starts to kind of talk bad about the Stazon. Uh, he says that they are only 
claiming this area of space because they too are interested in the large machine. Picard tells Riker that they have no intentions on leaving. He starts to think that the Grissom incident might have just been a misunderstanding. Picard reopens communications with Ramond. He offers a suggestion. What if the two organizations research the machine together and share the rewards? Ramond is not inclined to take Picard up on this offer and threatens that they will destroy the Enterprise and gives them three minutes to leave their territory. Picard cannot leave the away team, so he, Troy, Roe, Burke, Solus, and Thorn head to the battle bridge and leave Riker in command of the saucer. Riker makes a shipwide announcement for the crew to prepare for saucer separation. As the crew are running to and fro, Picard thinks to himself, This had better work. On the Death Star, Worf tells Geordi about the confrontation he had with Alexander about Alexander's treatment towards Mott. As you recall, he kind of called BS on some of Mott's stories. Worf wishes he had just a little more time with his son to make things right before he had to leave for this away mission. Geordi also says the timing was bad for him since he and O'Brien were just about to win the Billiards Championship. The three minutes are now up, but the Stazon are enraptured at the sight of the ship's separation. In a hallway, Alexander talks to Crusher about the crisis, and Mott is seen walking by and catching enough of the conversation to know that Worf is no longer aboard the ship. The Stazon are done watching the separation and press their attack. The saucer section tries to make a break for it, while the warp drive, or star drive, section tries to engage the attacking ships. The flagship of the Stazon fleet is not fooled and continues to chase the saucer section. They attack, but they miss, and their shot accidentally strikes the Death Star machine. Within the machine, Data notices that they were hit by something, and then he announces that he's reading an energy buildup. In the space around the machine, a huge wave of energy ripples from the machine and engulfs the Stazon ship and the saucer section. Once the shock wave has passed, both ships are missing. On the battle bridge, Roe reports the loss of the saucer section and claims that there is no wreckage to be continued. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Pretty action-packed. It is, and the disappearing act is impressive disappearing they were destroyed oh, so what the, do you what, what do you mean it was a what do you mean it was destroyed it was a disappearing act right yeah well you're supposed to think that it was a destroyed at this point oh to keep you coming back for more right we don't Come know on. what issue 41 is going to have well what did you think when you read that part i honestly did you, did you think the the saucer section and all aboard were going to be destroyed Yes, I did. Riker, Alexander, Crusher, everybody. Dead. <laughs> Dead meat. Dead meat! Yes. Well. Yep, and I was like wondering how they were going to explain that in Season 7, that suddenly half the crew is dead. <laughs> okay, Mr. Jokester, Mr. Jokester. Yeah, <laughs> you could have read this and read it that way. You could have interpreted it that way, but... Yeah. Right. No, but, that, ob- but that would be obviously. a little anticlimactic. But yeah. yeah, obviously they were sucked into the Nexus, and they're horseback riding with Kirk. We, we know where they're at. Right. That was another joke. Right, another joke. right, 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 right. Boy, right. I'm okay. full of them today. Anyway. Keep them, keep them coming. Keep so them. in actuality, they disappear. But you don't really know that at this point, for sure. You don't know. No. Although, Picard does say, 
But if they didn't explode, where is it? Yes. Right. The, the no wreckage does imply that they have somehow vanished. Maybe they cloaked. Maybe they went through time. We don't know yet. We don't know. All we know is there was a big flash. Yeah, which which is... I mean, let's talk about that real quick. So you have a Death Star. I mean, it looks just like the Death Star. I, it, and that's definitely one of my comments. They didn't even bother trying to make it look like anything else. Yeah, and they don't call it anything except the machine. Right. And which, of course, which, of mean, course, it, they didn't see Star Wars, so how could they say? Well, it looks like the Death Star. <laughs> hey, Riker, doesn't it look like the Death Star? Or like like when we did issue number um, eight uh, 39, you kept saying it looked like a tiny Dyson sphere. which And I kept saying it looked like a Death Star. Yeah. Well, in these drawings here... Uh, and quite frankly, I, I'd have to go back to the other issue to, to see to see there. But I wasn't thinking Death Star there. I'm definitely thinking Death Star here, especially at the end of the issue when they're you know kind of showing the close-ups of the thing. Right. I mean, you know. Yeah. All it needs is the big, you know, the big circle where it shoots out the the super laser. Right. But right. anyway, so, so right. let's say somebody did build a Death Star, and <laughs> what triggers it to fire is that. You hit it with some stray shot, and then it suddenly creates this big ripple effect and destroys all the ships around it. It seems it well, seems it, kind it, of an odd weapon. Yeah. Well, if it was a defensive move, you attack it, it responds by destroying you. That makes sense to me. But as we'll find out in the next issue, yes, indeed, Picard's suspicions are correct. Uh, they were transported. They were not destroyed. I agree that that's a weird way to, to, to trigger the transportation <laughs> or the transport cycle. Yeah, just shoot I, it. And yeah, it'll teleport and, and it'll teleport you to uh, where Pause. all the rest of the beings are that created it. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Yeah, I wonder how many times they can get hit before it actually starts taking damage and starts sending you somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, now, that's what it should do. That would be a good defensive move. Somebody shoots at you and they transport you, in, you know, away from everything. Right, into that a sun or sense. something. There you go, into a sun, that'd be good. Or maybe just leave you as scattered atoms. So, yeah. There you go. Anyways, I thought that was a little odd. Yeah. Me too. Um, so do you now agree with me that she's not Pulaski's daughter, Lieutenant Oliver? No. I've seen nothing to... You still think that, that she's Pulaski's daughter? Uh, yeah, I do. I've seen nothing to tell me she isn't. Except her name is not Pulaski? Well, it's Oliver. I mean, she's a female. I mean, come on, let's be traditional. Named after the father. Hello? Uh, you don't think Pulaski's her married name? I don't know, Donovan. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. All right. Well, we'll continue to disagree on that one. Cool. I will say, now that you bring her up, though, I think she's still annoying and a whiner. Yeah, and I can't believe she just stands up in the middle of this conversation. We gotta go! <laughs> oh, woe is me, Gulliver. We're, gonna, we're not gonna make it. No. No. I, you sit I, down and shut up. And then we'll see later that she's never reprimanded for that. I mean, and that's a huge... That's a huge faux pas for a bridge officer. I'd say so, especially when you're dealing with, obviously, a very dangerous opponent with, like, 16 ships, you know, all around you. 
Right. You think you think Picard would let Wesley stay on the bridge after an outburst like that? Oh, I don't think so. Nope. And he has removed the lad during outbursts, as we have seen in the past. So, yeah, I agree with you on that one. Anyway. And Ensign Rowe. You know, again with the melancholy routine. It's like, are they going to go anywhere with that? I was wondering what, what, what she was talking about there. I didn't mention it in the synopsis. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, at the, at the very beginning of the first issue, when Data's talking to her, and he's called away. So... And she was getting ready to tell the story. You know, it was some holiday. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. I yeah, forgot so. about that. And so it's like, okay. So you, you, you began that little side thread in the first issue. You've reinforced it in this issue. You don't say anything about it in the next two issues. So hopefully there's some reason for that by the, the final issue. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. It keeps me from thinking about how, un, uh, how, how sad I am. Yeah, they're on okay. page 13. Yep. Good. Good for you, Ro. Buck yeah. up a bit, milady. Yeah, you're right. Hopefully hopefully next week we'll, uh, or the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll find out what she's talking about. Right. I thought that they were alluding to something in one of the, you know, late season six episodes that wasn't just like that Maquis episode, maybe. Oh. But I don't know. That was just a guess. I had a theory when I when I got to the end of this is uh you know did 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 they transport the ships into the sphere somehow like in some kind of little mini transform or something like that put them on ice or something in stasis or did they transport them far away I didn't know I was just throwing out ideas I was just brainstorming <laughs> and, and what did you uh, on a different note uh, hopefully hopefully this is okay but uh, what did you think about Worf saying, I wish I had time with my son, you know, I may never see him again, blah, 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 blah. And then Jordy's follow-up to that was, <laughs> yeah, I almost I almost won the, the billiard championship. <laughs> I was like, seriously? They do, those two things don't compare at all, Jordy. Sorry. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, uh, not not to go into too much about my personal life, but I've had some, you know, bad news as of late and I was telling somebody about it at work and and then he was like oh that's terrible and then he started telling me a story that was you know not at all related but it was just like really you you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna compare that story to that story right. and then you know once he once he got started I think he realized he was making a mistake but you know you can't stop so right so I've been giving him grief about that for the last couple of weeks like, anytime somebody <laughs> says something bad, I'm like, uh, "Hey, you got you got a story for us?" <laughs> but anyways, when I was reading this and Jordy did that, I was like, "Damn, Jordy!" <laughs> and and he's even you know he's in a spacesuit and he's even there with the moves like he's you know he's play he's doing a shot on the pool you know on the pool table right. And at first, when I saw that before I actually started reading the words, I thought he was like doing some kind of you know judo move or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of look like a judo like, what, what? What are you doing, Jordy? And it's like, oh, he's playing pool. Okay, okay, I got that. Yeah. Well. But, uh, I mean, when he says that and then Worf says billiards championship with a question mark, I like to read a lot of sarcasm into that. <laughs> I may never see my son again, and you're worried that you didn't get to play finish a game of pool. Yeah, exactly. But, and, uh, and, uh, and knowing Worf, that's exactly probably what they intend to get across. <laughs> So you thought the... How, how are you saying? 
Stazen. So, so, so basically, the Z is silent. It, it is a, a, a an S Z. So it's S Z T A Z Z A N. So Zetazen, Hassan Pfeffer Incorporated. Whatever. I don't know. It's alien. What do you want? Anyway, I thought they looked kind of like wasps. Myself. You thought they looked like beetles? Their bodies were looking like beetles, I thought. They're, they're definitely insectoid, which really is about the only thing that really matters. They have that triangular head, so I guess I can see the uh, wasp reference. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're kind of funky looking, but, you know. I was really hoping for more of the USS Grissom and backstory to find out how Lieutenant Oliver survived the attack and what happened to all of our other co-workers. Right. And how did she survive? If everybody else died on the ship, how did she survive? We don't know yet that she's the only one to survive. Well, okay. Well, she keeps on talking about, they killed all my friends! Yeah, okay. So maybe there's people you hated on the ship and they survived too. Okay. Did you also think it was weird there on page 7, where right after Lieutenant Oliver has her little outburst, that... Riker and Picard start having a somewhat private conversation and it never says they disconnect communication with the aliens. <laughs> and, and the insect guy is like sitting there going, hello, I'm still on. You're talking about me. Maybe they were muted or whatever and it was just off screen. I don't know. Maybe he made the hand gesture. Whatever. Uh, that was my last note for this issue. That's my last note too. I'm done. Uh, I, I think I think the artwork was pretty good. Yeah, me too. I even liked all the ships. Um, yeah, even the Death Star. Especially the Death Star. What are you talking about? Who doesn't love a Death Star? <laughs> come on, that goes without saying. I mean, come on. The Empire loved it so much they did it twice. Exactly. It, it, it's kind of like a Stargate when they started having like like them attacking Earth like fifteen times at the end of every season. And, and even the actors were starting to uh, make, make comments. You know, the characters were making comments. This somehow seems strangely familiar. Um, yeah, it's like, come on. Can't, can't they blow... Can, how about if they made something, uh, a Death Star, like, is oblong or something? Or, you know, it's something. I don't know. Mix it up a little bit. This is not a Star Wars Stargate podcast, but in the novels, uh, one written by Kevin J. Anderson, uh, the Huts did create a super laser type Death Star, uh, where they just took the super laser out of the Death Star, and it was kind of like a like a lightsaber. They, they they said it was shaped like a lightsaber, so it was cylindrical. And uh, it, there you go. Okay, well there you go. They should have done that instead of saying, "Hey, you know, we got the plans laying here. You know, let's call let's." Let's get a loan and uh, build another one. Shall we go on to the next thrill-packed issue? Yes, please. Let's do. Good. Uh, So this is issue 41, Separation Anxiety. Published date is December 1992. Creative team, writer Michael Jan Friedman, penciler Bob Davis, inker Pablo Marcus, colorist Tom McCraw, letterer Bob Panaha, and editor Alan Gould. The cover shows Worf, Geordi, and Data in the Sphere Machine looking out at the battle section of the Enterprise engaged in battle with multiple uh, Stazon ships. Oddly enough, they are in their normal uniforms rather than the spacesuits they were wearing in the last issue. 
The story opens with the Enterprise battle section, face-to-face with uh, six Stazon, Stazon ships. No one is firing. On the battle bridge, Picard and company are trying to figure out where the saucer section and the Stazon vessel uh, attacking it went to. They theorize the Stazon ship uh, are not attacking because they could be as confused over where their ship went as, uh, as they are over the saucer section. A signal from the machine is received. It is from Data and the away team. Picard brings them up to speed, including the disappearance of the saucer section. Data states he may be able to shed some light on where the saucer section disappeared to. He has made a discovery. Meanwhile, somewhere else, Riker and the crew of the saucer section are trying to figure out where they are. Riker has a conversation with Desora, a female officer manning Worf's normal tactical station. The star patterns are unfamiliar, so the navigational computers are unable to pinpoint their exact location so far. However, one thing is for sure, it's not where they were a few seconds ago. Given lack of warp drive, their options for returning to known space are grim. Their situation is worse when they notice the Stazon ship was transported to this odd location with them. After the initial dread at their enemy's presence, Riker hails the Stazon ship. Meanwhile, at a very different location, Picard is discussing the nature of the machine with Data and the away team. They theorize the machine's purpose is to transport ships to distant locations perhaps as fast as instantaneously. Data theorizes it accomplishes this by opening and closing wormholes. Picard asks if they know enough about the machine to retrieve the saucer section. Data says, not now, but given time they may be able to figure it out. It would be helpful if they knew where the saucer section was transported to. Picard orders them to continue working on the problem while he will try to keep the remaining Stazon ships at bay. They cannot let the Stazon drive them from the area until the saucer section and away team can be re- retrieved. The Stazon hail the Enterprise. They demand the return of their flagship. Picard tells them they did not steal his ship, and their saucer section was taken also. The Stazon do not believe them and warns them his patience is limited. Picard is careful not to tell them he has an away team on the machine. To buy time, he asks the Stazon that if they are so sure the Federation took their flagship, they should consider how eager they are to have another one taken. Communications channel is closed abruptly. Picard thinks that will hold him for a while, but Troy warns him it might not last long given the Stazon's tendency towards rash action. Meanwhile, in the saucer section... Lieutenant Leffler is informing Alexander and the rest of the Enterprise children of their situation and stating her confidence that no matter how long it takes, they will make it back to the Enterprise battle section. On the bridge, Riker comments on the lack of a signal from the Stazon ship. They seem to only communicate when they can threaten people. Not much leverage to threaten people at the moment. One of the bridge officers reports that they've detected a very large planet on their sensors. Not Class M, so they cannot breathe the air, but that does not mean other life forms do not live there. Riker conjectures that if the machine sent 
them here. It must be a destination for the race that built the machine. They set course for the planet, full impulse. The Stazon ship follows them. In their quarters, Miles O'Brien has an argument with his wife Keiko over his assignment to the away team. She says it's too dangerous while she holds their sleeping child Molly in her arms. The discussion continues until Keiko accepts the situation and wishes Miles all the luck in the world. Back on the alien machine, Geordi and the rest of the team continue to try to figure out how the machine's transportation system works. Data notices a considerable power buildup in one of the power nodes. Data contacts Captain Picard. Meanwhile, in a galaxy far, far away, the Enterprise saucer section and its Stazon shadow enter orbit around the large planet. Chief O'Brien is with his away team preparing to transport down. Sensors pick up no life forms, but Riker tells the team to proceed as planned. Despite not having a welcoming party, they may discover something useful down there. As the team beams down, Riker thinks how he wishes he could go with them. He thinks how competent Dr. Crusher is, and that she vouched for Lieutenant Oliver's inclusion on the away team. He begins to second-guess himself for including her, given her overtly, overly emotional outbursts and demonstrations of hatred towards the Stazon. She may become a detriment to the team, but Dr. Crusher did vouch for her. Back in the Alpha Quadrant, the Enterprise Battle Section continues its face-off with over 16 Stazon ships. LaForge's incoming signal is picked up by Picard. He tells the captain, power build-up, probably triggered by the Stazon weapon striking it, has triggered a chain reaction. It will blow up the machine if they can't stop it. LaForge asks if the captain still wants to hang around. At that moment, the Stazon hail the Enterprise. They demand that Picard and the Enterprise leave the area immediately. They have come to the conclusion that it was the machine that caused their flagship's disappearance, not the Enterprise, so there is no reason for them to stay in the area. Picard says there is a reason. They have a missing ship, too, that must be recovered. The Stazons say that would not be the case if they left when they should have. Picard says he will hold their position, no matter what it takes. Continued? Absolutely! That, that's what it says in the, in the com- at the end of the comic. So All I right. thought I would, too. They mixed nice. it up a little bit. Nice. Like Ron Burgundy, with a question mark. L- like what? Ron Burgundy. Did you ever see that movie? Oh, right. Ron Burgundy. Yeah, I thought the concept of that movie was really good, and a couple of the performances were really good, but it wasn't as funny as it should have been. Uh, it was one of those ones that kind of has a lot of little funny moments, right. but overall, when you're watching it, it's just like, eh. Yeah. I especially love that name. That's great. Ron Burgundy. Anchorman. That's great. <laughs> anyway, back to Star Trek. Back to Star Trek. So, uh, this Leffler girl. Yes. This is Robin Leffler? You think? Uh, could be. Could be. What did she did she match the drawing? I can't remember what she looked like. I thought Leffler was uh what's her name? Ashley Judd? Oh, that was the one that was getting close to to um uh to Wesley? Wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't it? Was that her? Okay. Could be. Could be. 
I'm trying to remember, but I think that's who it was. I think it, that that's that's who Robin Leffler was. Okay. So she stuck around and um, right. on the Enterprise. Oh, you know what? In fact, they do actually mention her in the previous issue when Crusher and Oliver are on the holodeck, and Oliver's asking, you know, have you heard from your son? And she's like, yeah, she, he sends more notes to his girlfriend, Robin, than he does me. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's definitely who she is. Yeah, okay, cool. But this picture doesn't look like Ashley Judd. No. Cool, cool, cool. But, uh, anyways. Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is my confusion over who Riker is sending on this away away mission. Now, it all makes sense later in the story, but... Okay. <laughs> They're sending O'Brien because of his, quote, tactical experience. Which is okay. I mean, so they mean his, his experience as a, as a soldier. You know, I mean, basically, you know, fighting against... Uh, the Cardassians, right? That's what they're talking about? Right, I would assume right. so. Okay. So, it's like, don't they have security guys? I mean, right. if that's what they want, you know, kind of a, a military, kind of a, you know, action-packed kind of thing if things go bad, is that what you have security guys around for? I don't know. As opposed to the transporter guy. But um, I thought that was a little odd, but okay, fine. But then they go ahead and include Dr. Crusher. Um, and she seems to be leading the away mission. It's like, okay, um, I, you know, from a doctor standpoint, you know, I suppose if you thought you could have injuries, maybe it's a good idea to send a doctor. I got to ask how wise it is sending your head doctor, uh, unless, of course, they really are sending her for, for her command abilities. Well, they're definitely which it kind sending- of seems like it. They're definitely sending her for her command abilities. In fact, he even states that he wants to go on the mission, right? Uh, but he can't because you know he can't leave the the Enterprise in in sure. Yeah, he's the Crusher's captain, hands. right? Gotcha. Yeah, and at but, this point, Crusher was a full fledged commander. Yeah, it just seems a little odd choice of who well, to lead the away team. But uh, yeah, I sure I remember the episode where. She actually commanded the Enterprise in time of duress. Right. So I remember that, yes, but it's like, uh, come on, whatever. Well, once once you lose Picard, Riker, Data, Worf, Geordi, I mean, who ne- who is next in line? I'm not sure, but I mean, your your chief medical officer. I don't know. It just it didn't make the the greatest amount of sense. And right. then you're you're going to go ahead and send a Lieutenant Oliver. Yeah, that and one it's like, looks like... What? what? Am I reading this right? <laughs> uh, of course, you find out why they all went... Well, okay, so the, the two ladies go, and it all makes sense later about why they did it, but I still think it's flawed logic. Um, but then O'Brien. You know, I mean, the only reason they sent O'Brien is they probably had to do something with him and to have that useless argument between him and Keiko. Well, here's my theory on why they used O'Brien. Yeah. Um, one, I think that they were... I mean, they already knew that Deep Space Nine was in production, <laughs> and, and they knew that they would lose him pretty soon uh, to that show, plus uh, they wanted to really build up maybe his uh, experience 
uh, being an engineer, so maybe that's the reason why they picked him. I don't know. Right. And from a technical standpoint, fine, I see that. But that's not what he's saying to Keiko. No, you're right. He says tactical experience, which which doesn't really fit that scenario. Uh, I mean, mainly he's there because he has a similar story to... Um, what's her name? That that uh, Oliver has a hatred towards these stays on, and he has this hatred towards the Cardassian. Right, and we'll see that. Is that the next issue we see that, or did we? Yeah, next issue. Okay, so a little foreshadowing for everybody. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I just at the time it was happening, and I was reading about who was going on this mission. It was like, wow, interesting choices. Anyway, having Lieutenant Oliver chosen was. A surprise to me. Exactly. This is a, this is an important mission, and she's already shown that she's pretty emotional here. And um, and, and now you're going to have her. I guess they didn't know that they're going to beam down. But actually, Riker did say he expected that was a, that was a possibility when they beamed down that that the Stazon would also be going down. So anyway, seems like you're putting a loose cannon into a situation who's likely to face uh, her biggest fears. I don't know. Yeah, I figured that because Crusher was in charge of the away mission, she picked her, right? Yep. I, I had that impression, too, but still. I mean, he's the captain. but And he is questioning the decision, so, okay, fine. But still, it was it's a weird decision. All right. Um, so. What did you think about the guest penciler, Rob Davis, stepping in for Peter Krauss? Did you notice any differences? Um... You know, quite frankly, I did not. I did not. Although I suppose if I actually compared Picard in this issue to the close-ups of Picard in the previous issue, there'd probably be some differences. Although, quite frankly, I'm switching between 41 and 40, and they bo- and the pages I've got on each one has, uh, like, Picard close-ups, and they look pretty similar. Yeah, I thought they were really close. Uh, I thought they were good. Um, didn't... S- didn't wasn't jarring that the artist suddenly changed. Yeah, well, yeah, and until you said that, I didn't. So yes, good, good job of continuity. Well, they they certainly did uh, kick the pressure up a notch when at the end when they said, "Oh, the machine's gonna blow up." Oh, great! Seemed like an unnecessary plot point to suddenly put in there that FYI, we're about to blow up. Uh, yeah. And and who knows? Maybe in the next issue. You know, we'll find out that um, maybe it doesn't blow up. Who knows? We might find out. Or maybe it does. Things are looking dire all of a sudden. But if it doesn't blow up, I gotta say, the artificiality quotient goes up. You mean they might have just stuck this in there to sell the next issue? Indeed. I thought the new Prometheus movie was a little guilty of that, too. Oh, yeah. There's that whole scene where they're trying to outrun a sandstorm... And there was really no ramifications from it. If you got stuck in it, you just fly around for a little bit like a little ping pong ball. And then, you know, once it's over, you just dust your stuff off and you're ready for your next adventure. <laughs> exactly. But it did, if I remember correctly, it did make those guys, it did isolate those two guys that were left in the building overnight. You mean the guy that created the map? Yeah, he should have gotten lost. <laughs> exactly right exactly exactly that's exactly right anyways I thought that Prometheus was, was really guilty about just sticking things in there because they needed something uh huh we need something here 
we, we need to punch it up right here. I don't really want to beat it up. I just uh, I didn't enjoy the movie as I wanted to, but I know that you did. No, no. I thought it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. Not a perfect movie, but... So speaking of the Alien franchise, which is one of my favorite franchises of all time, uh, there's an ad for Alien 3, the video game. Oh, have you played that? Of course I have. <laughs> yeah, back in 1993, uh, I was a high school student, and I made a vow that I would buy either the Sega Genesis or Super Nintendo, whichever one came out with an Aliens game first. And here's the ad. Sega Genesis. <laughs> so yeah, I ran over to Babbage's and I purchased myself a Sega Genesis and one copy of Alien 3. Wow. I I guess their their licensing decisions worked off. Paid off in your case. Yeah, I guess it worked out for Sega since I bought theirs instead of Nintendo's. Uh, but uh, yeah, and it's a great game. Uh, it's a, a little bit of a maze shoot 'em up. Right, right. And so this is a 2D kind of, you know, you go left and right. Side-scroller. Side-scroller, that's the yeah. right word. Uh, this one was more of a traditional just shoot, you know, as they as they come at you. And a, a little bit of a maze because you had a time limit to, to get all the people before the chestbusters came out. Uh-huh. And then the, uh, the Super Nintendo one was more like Metroid where you, you know, you had to go from screen to screen and... It was it was more of a it, to me it was less fun than than the Sega Genesis one was. Oh, but mm-hmm. it was good. Got me to buy the system, didn't it? That. So when I was reading this and that advertisement right came up, I was like, I know what I was doing when this issue came out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing. Anyways, cool. That's what nice. else you got? That was my last comment. Um, I don't, uh, I don't have another comment. Although, uh, since you did mention something on the side, I did like the Batman comic ad. Uh, which one? The Elseworlds one? Well, the one that it looks like he's back in the Old West or something. Uh, he's riding a, ho- a black horse, of course. Yeah. And, uh, and he looks like a Western Batman. Who's wanted? Yeah, so, uh, around this time, DC was doing this Elseworlds, uh, I guess it was... An imprint. Of, uh, it was just basically a bunch of little what if stories. Right. So the, they started off with Gotham by Gaslight, where it was like, what if Batman was in the 1930s or 1800s with uh, in London tracking down Jack the Ripper? Mm-hmm. Actually, no, it was still Gotham. Jack the Ripper had came from London, and he was starting up in Gotham. And oh. Bruce Wayne of that time, you know, donned on the bat suit, and it was fantastic. And then they they did like, what if? Uh, Clark Kent, or what if Kal-El crash-landed in Gotham and the Waynes found him? So (laughs) instead of Bruce Wayne being their biological son, Bruce Wayne was their adopted son that they found in the spaceship. So he grew up with, as Bruce Wayne did, except he was Superman. So he became Batman, but he had all of Superman's powers. That is a fantastic book. Wow. That's confusing. Okay. It was so good. It was so good. It was called uh, Speeding Bullets. So it was, uh, you know, based in current time, but Bruce Wayne was really Kal-El from Krypton. <laughs> it was... Okay. It, it lost me a little bit when they tried to merge the Joker and Lex Luthor into the same character, but oh. merging Bruce Wayne and Kal-El together, I thought really worked in that story. 
Wow, that's interesting. But anyways, this was yet another uh, what-if type story where what if right. Batman uh, started off in the uh, Civil War. Right. Interesting. It was nice. good. Okay, actually, I do have one more comment on this issue. Besides that, mm-hmm. ad, that Batman ad, is I'm not crazy about the drawing of Miles O'Brien. Uh, I will say that it's one of the better depictions I've seen of Miles O'Brien. It's just, again, I'm just not incredibly crazy about the... The artist's depiction. Yeah. Well, at least he doesn't have the giant cone head. <laughs> yes, he does have an incredibly. He does not have an incredibly inhumanly large uh, <laughs> forehead. Yes, that's ha- that's handy. So you just think he looks too wrinkly, or what? I, I just don't think it's a, a, a good depiction. I mean, I don't think it's the best depiction I've seen. Huh. Some are pretty bad. Yeah, I, I guess they're a little inconsistent, but. Yeah. Keiko looks horrible, but I thought O'Brien looks Yeah, Keiko pretty. doesn't look too good either. But, um, yeah, I think her eyes are a little, not quite Asian enough. Yeah, I don't know. Especially. They put, they put the chopsticks in her hair, so at, what, at first oh! she has some sort of antenna. They, are, they do look like chopsticks, or knitting needles. I think they are chopsticks, because that was the style for a while, remember? Really? Yeah, they would put like, I mean, they're not chopsticks, chopsticks. but they looked like chopsticks. Okay. And people were putting them in their hair. Well, you know, it was hip in the 90s, and it'll I be hip again fad. in the 24th century. I, I miss that fad. Damn it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, that's it for this one, for me. All right. Me too. So we'll jump into 42, Great. entitled Second Chances. By um, came out January 1993. And all the writing staff is the same as issue um, 40. So... The penciler, again, is Peter Krause. Yeah, so, but this time uh, Pablo is demoted to inker. Well, isn't that what he was last time? He's He was a finisher in the first issue, wasn't he? Yeah, I think that's just another word for inker. Oh, then why don't they just say inker? I don't know. I don't know. Why do, they, why do they... They change up the credits a lot. Just different little... I don't okay. know, man. I don't know. Leave me alone. <laughs> but, I mean, that's what you do. You pencil it, and then you finish it. Well, yeah, I know. Why it's just that, it? that why are they using different labels? I don't know. Because in the first one, it was Breakdown Artist, Peter right. Cross. And then Finishes, finish. Pablo Marcus. So, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so. Moving here, Penciler is Kraus, and Inker is Marcus. Marcus, whatever his name is. Yep. All right. Cover shows O'Brien ready to fire his phaser while Crusher is scanning someone off screen. In the background of both of them, we see several Starfleet crew members fighting large green aliens that don't quite look insectoid, more amphibian looking, but I'm assuming they're the uh, Stazon. All right, so the story starts with a lovely shot of Crusher in a skin-tight spacesuit on the deserted planet. Behind her is several other suited Starfleet personnel. Her logs state that the scans from orbit were correct, that there is no life at all on this planet, and all the buildings seem to be unscathed. O'Brien picks up what might be a computer signal from a nearby building, and they head to investigate. Once there, they find the terminal, and he starts to work to try to interface with it. Many light years away, Picard is in communication with Data, who is still on the Death Star machine. Data tells Picard that he cannot stop the energy buildup, but he can delay it. Roe informs the captain that the Stazon 
are moving in for another attack. The engineering section or star drive section is able to avoid several attacks and even take a shot to knock out one of the attacking ships. They continue this stick and move tactic and take out a few other ships, but they're still greatly outnumbered. On the saucer section, Mott speaks to Miss Kyle, the teacher. He checks in on how Alexander is doing. He asks her if he might be up for a little distraction to take his mind off of Worf's fate. Back in the battle bridge, Riker checks in on Crusher. Uh, she informs him that O'Brien is still working on the computer, and Riker informs her that the Saison have beamed down an away team of their own, so that they should soon expect company. O'Brien has made a breakthrough and announces that he is now learning the history of the Builders. It seems that they were indeed the ones that built the large transporter on the other side of the galaxy to beam them here when their planet was being wiped out by a natural disaster. Once they had relocated to this planet, it too was wiped out, this time by a rogue comet about a hundred years after the relocation. He states that he sees that they also built another machine on this side of the galaxy that could potentially send them back. He needs a little bit more time to track where this one might be located. Just then, the Stazen start their attack. Crusher orders the doors blocked, but they eventually get in with a large explosion. When the rubble of the door settles, Mendoza's suit is damaged, and Lieutenant Oliver finds a Stazon pinned under some of the rubble. She thinks about leaving it, but then she has a change of heart, and she helps the alien get free. O'Brien gets the data he needs, and they beam away, just as the attacking aliens open fire. Their phaser shots streak through the crew's pattern effects. On the Death Star machine, Jordy exclaims that they have succeeded in delaying the destruction of the station. He says that they only had minutes to spare. Data then informs him that they actually only had seconds to spare. In space, the Enterprise's star drive is still dodging the Stazon attacks. The aliens get a good hit on the nacelles, but the shields were able to take most of the force. Picard wonders how much longer they can hold out. On the saucer section, Crusher informs Riker about Oliver's encounter with the alien. O'Brien then arrives and gives them some good news and some bad news. The good news is that there is indeed another station in the area. The bad news is that without warp drive, it will take about a year to get there, and that they do not have enough deuterium to make it to be continued. Well, so that's I, I thought it was kind of cool that that they did stick with the limitations of the uh, the saucer section. Yeah, so you've only got impulse and thrusters. You know, you're not going to be going warp. So I kind of like that. Yeah, I wish they would do that more often in the in the show itself. Yeah. Because when they separated to do Best of Both Worlds, didn't it kind of warp out of there? Um, which I never really understood how it, you know, it should have just been moving at sublight speeds. I don't remember. Because, uh, what's her name? Shelby. Shelby. Yeah, yeah. Commander Shelby. Right, Commander Shelby. So she took the saucer section on like a separate course and then came back to the board cube to do the whole finale thing, right? Or am I misremembering that? But she like warped away for a while. Right. Well, 
I think you can still go pretty fast uh, on full impulse. It's just obviously you're not going to be covering, uh, you know, tons of light years, you know, as you would with warp drive. But yeah, yeah. Do you know how fast it can go? I don't know. Oh, um, I, I think it's sublight. So is it the speed of light? I don't know. It depends what the writers made up because it isn't real. <laughs> but uh, you know, obviously you're, you're under you're under uh, the speed of light. Not real. That's crazy talk. But uh, I guess we can move on to other things. Right. So my theory is that since they can't, but they know that the stays on ship can, it's like maybe they're going to have to work with them or something. I don't know. That's my theory for the next one. Sounds like a good theory, and I'm sure that Lieutenant Oliver's helping of the stays on might play a factor. Uh, perhaps. That would be that would be the other side of it, because the stays on has shown no indication of helping <laughs> anybody but themselves so far. So Right, so my theory is is that uh Oliver saves somebody of pretty high importance that uh will then be able to get the rest of the stays on to help her or help the Enterprise get back home. Uh, similar to uh, that issue of Early Voyages, issue number 10 and 11 that we covered in episode 16, where the nurse ha- helped one of her mortal enemies that one time. Right. Carlotti, I think it was her name, and she had a choice between help helping that one uh, alien or... Um, or kill him. Right. And it turns out to be like, like the Admiral or something, or... I think it was like a princess or some sort of like uh, monarch or of some sort of those uh, like horse-looking people. Do you mean they've done this before? Wait a minute. Technically, these issues came out before those Marvel early Voyager ones. Ah, good point, good point. I hadn't remembered that, but you're completely right about that. Good catch. So I thought, uh, I just noticed something, I don't know if you did too, but they, they, they seem to have an awful lot of Starfleet emblems. You know the swish with the oval around it uh, on those helmets of theirs. You know the the pressure suit, uh, space suits. So they got one where your chin is, and they got one up on up up on the on the on the top front of, above your left eye. Oh yeah, I, I hadn't noticed it when I was reading them. Right next to the headlamp, which I like. Yeah, I, I like that built-in flashlight idea. That that's cool. But you know they got a lot of emblems on those helmets. I wonder if any of them are functional, so you can actually slap it to uh, open up a communication channel, or if it's just decorative. Yeah. Yeah, so... Looks cool, though. I like it. Yeah, it does look pretty cool. Um, it just seems a little overkill. So how do you think they open communication? Slap their forehead or slap their chin? <laughs> uh, either way, it's not pretty. I would think chin would be better, but... Eh. So uh, I thought O'Brien was really good about being able to read through what's probably a massive amount of history, you know, in this alien database, and finding just the right information that uh, Riker and we, the readers, need to know about. You think it's a little too convenient that he had only those four panels to give us information and it was exactly what we need? Oh, right, 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 right. You found you found just all the other information that we need. Yeah. Although I must say, okay, so they're talking about the comet coming too close, close enough that it takes out the um, well, basically the transportation modules, or what they call them, pods. Right, the pods in orbit. 
So, okay, so the the machine in in the Alpha Quadrant transports these pod things, which supposedly didn't have any kind of propulsion of their own. In the little one-man pods or something? Oh, it, did you did you get the impression it's personal size? I I thought it could have been any size. I mean, you're transporting your entire society. So I would I would think that they'd be big pods that could carry things as well as people, but I don't know. Anyway, but the main point is, whether they're small or big, whatever. But the thing is, so they're still in orbit, (laughs) and although some people are on the ground, because they showed pictures of some of these aliens uh, that that built the machine, the Death Star machine, um, on the ground, but apparently not everybody's there, because apparently at least most of them are still in transport in these pod things. And this comet comes in, and it takes them all out. You know, everything that's up in in the sky. I got that the pods were just up there and were like relics of how they got to the new planet, uh, that nobody was still on them. Oh, okay. Okay, well, let's say that that happened. But that's not what I got, but that could have been it. I could have misread it. Um, so what again killed all the people yet left all the buildings standing? I, I thought they said the comet hit the Earth, hit the planet. But I would think that a comet hitting the planet would cause some sort of... Take out the buildings. Right. I don't know. It, it was a bit muddled there. But it's like, or, okay, fine. They, they're all dead. Okay, let's go with it. Or did it somehow change the atmosphere so that they could no longer support their life? Because they did say that they have very unique uh, planetoid requirements. That there were the, the, this planet and the planet on the other side of the galaxy were the only two that they had ever encountered that could support their life. Right. So maybe the comet didn't destroy a lot of stuff, but somehow changed their environment the so that they couldn't live there anymore. Yeah. Right. Okay, that could be. That that makes more sense than, you know, physical impact or something. Right, but that picture is sad where it shows the the mom holding a little baby alien when the uh, comet is hitting the planet. Yeah, that's terrible. It's an alien. Still. And they're kind of and they're kind of green ones, aren't they? Again. Well, it it's kind of hard to tell cuz it's kind of a Black and it, white. everything's shaded really dark blue. Oh, right. It's right, all right, shades right. of blue. Right. And it looks but, like they got four eyes, and yeah, so they basically got like a Greedo mouth with these little horn things on the top of their head, right? And then they have four eyes, right? They look pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, from behind they kind of look a little bit like Zippy the Pinhead, like um, if you remember <laughs> that cartoon. I remember the cartoon, um, especially the baby. It looks like a little baby Zippy the Pinhead because you see the back of his head, you don't see all the all the eyes and stuff. Right. So, what do okay. you think about the skin tight costume at the beginning, or just in general? Oh, they're, they're spacesuits. I thought I thought Crusher was looking great. <laughs> it's like it, it's a it's a big she she dominates the first page, right? It's you her. know, and uh, yep, she's there, boy, and that's that's a nice looking outfit you got on there, Beverly. And she looks so stalwart. I mean, look at that look on her face. Like, gosh darn it, I'm gonna do the best job possible. Oh, they drew her face. Let me look. Yes. <laughs> yeah, see? Now that you've seen it like the 15th time, yes. <laughs> yeah, she's got great thighs. Look at those knees. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it's just not a costume that I've ever seen anybody in the show wear. No, well, this this is a unique spacesuit. And it is form-fitting. And heck, you can see Jordy's uh, abs, so, in previous issues. Hmm, Jordy's abs. Jordy's abs. Which is amazing in a spacesuit. <laughs> that that future attack. Well, I mean, it's the same kind of outfit that uh, 
the Lost in Space folks wore. Yeah. Remember, they wore very form-fitting. More form-fitting, yeah. Aluminum foil outfits. <laughs> right. That must have been hot. Because back <laughs> then, you know. Anyway. What else you got? I thought it was odd that uh, Lieutenant Oliver thought that some of her people were trapped in the rubble. And that's why she ran forward to the rubble, only to find, damn, it was one of those filthy, stinking stasins. I thought that was odd. Well, I thought it was odd that Beverly waited that long to try to shut the door. I mean, they knew that they were on their way. Right. And she waits to the last minute to shut the door, and then it just, they go through the door pretty quick. Well, but they, but they also shoot a uh, what looks like a rocket, a shoulder rocket launcher through it. They were using some heavy munitions. It looks just like a normal phaser. What? No, no, no. Okay, I'm going to go back and find that page again. Oh, I mean, yeah, one yeah, of the, the, guys se- has... the second time. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, at, yeah. First, at first they're using regular phaser-looking things, you know, laser-based. But then somebody comes up from behind with what looks like kind of like a... Pretty beefy rocket launcher thing. Yeah, like a bazooka type thing. Right. Yeah, no, I see it. They're on page 16. Right. They well, brought I mean, in the heavy equipment. Yeah, so how did that alien get in the front of the rubble? I, 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 right. Uh, right. So what you would have... I mean, they are on one... They're clearly out in the hallway. So then they go ahead and shoot the shoot the bazooka and then then that's when they have the cave in right and it looks like the rubble is being taken out of the way inside the large room that uh, that the way team is in so right i agree with you how did he get in there how did the rubble come down on top of him when they were all outside in the hallway right so it's a mystery man mystery yeah. it's a mystery and of course they are also in in spacesuits so i kind of understand that like in bad light you see somebody in a helmet you know maybe you think it's your people but yeah i don't know right right doesn't look like a beetle <laughs> right uh of course the you know the, their spacesuits are green our spacesuits are white but still i guess it was low light whatever whatever it seemed a little odd it was convenient to the plot to show that she had grown. Yeah, well, and she hadn't. Because she was like, hey, uh, Shih Tzu's in here. Wait a minute. Ah, I don't like them. And, then, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like she was trying to save them. Well, she, she mistakenly does, thought they were their own, they, they were Federation people. But she does time. save him at the end. I thought she didn't purposely do anything to help him. She tried to move all this stuff out of the way because she thought... It was uh, one of her away team people. And then all the others rush onto the scene. And, and even, what's-her-face, uh, Oliver, she's even turned away from the, from the alien who's going, Ugh, you know. So I got the impression that as soon as she found out it was a dirty, stinking shih tzu, uh, she went ahead and just like turned her back on him. Well, but she, she does, because at first that's what she's thinking, but then... When Beverly says four to beam up, she says, wait, not yet. And then she asks for them to help her free him. Okay. Um, yeah, okay, I didn't get that, but I guess yeah, you're hard, right. It's hard Everybody's to tell in, the, the, in the outfits. Because uh, when the person that says, 
uh, a Shih Tzu and he's hurt. I thought yeah. that was more like Beverly. No, that's that, that's Oliver. But... Okay. And then she stands up and turns her back, and then she's like, "Oh wait, we got to help him." Right. Yeah, okay. it's hard to tell with the uh, the faces and. You know, the faces being so small and being the only way you can identify who's who. Right. But that's what I got out of it. Right. And there are only two women on the away mission, right? So. Yeah. That's definitely women. But they definitely have the same body type. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, they don't have much variety there. There are perfect physiques. Right. Um, And of course, again, Federation folks, oh, we're so great. We put ourselves in jeopardy to save the alien. And then when we transport out, the bad aliens uh, are shooting the leftover shadows of our outlines. Convenient, right? Yes. And there, and there's like there, there's like like five different beams uh, shooting, uh, and three of them, four of them are going right through, uh, you know, partial patterns of people. Right. It's crazy. It's crazy. They're bad, and we're good. That's right. Um, and I guess the only thing I want to say left is I kind of like the look of that other Batman comic. By the way, Batman must be very popular around this time period, or they're just doing a lot with him. This was 93. This was when Goodness. Batman Returns had just come out. So. Ah, right, so he was getting more more attention. He was on an upswing. So this one's kind of cool. This is Batman, Birth of the Demon, and it shows what looks kind of like a, like a Batman zombie kind of thing. With a shovel in his chest, kind of coming back to life or something. Yes, the origin of Rasha Ghul. Right, which is interesting. But what does that have to do with this thing that looks like a like Batman, you know, reanimating in some kind of zombie thing? Well, that's that's the story of Rasha Ghul. Is that? Uh, but he wasn't Batman. Well, I, no. I know he supposedly came back to life in some kind of pool or something. I yeah, the Lazarus Pit. There you go, the Lazarus Pit. That sounds good. But uh, this, I mean, this looks like Batman who's coming back to life, right? And I think I think Batman might have ex- have been. I think they used the Lazarus Pit on Batman. Oh, because oh. Ra's al Ghul wants wants Batman to be the the head of the League of Shadows. He wants Bruce Wayne to take his place. He thinks that that only Batman is the the rightful heir to him. Oh. And so I think that uh, in that storyline, he ends up using the Lazarus Pit on Batman, thinking that that would, you know, convert him to his cause. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Because uh, by this point, they'd already done um, the uh, the storyline where Batman and Talia had consummated their relationship, and it ends with her with a little baby. With a, a pendant of of Bruce Wayne and, and Talia in it, being put up for adoption somewhere, oh. implying that they had conceived a child and, and Bruce Wayne never knew about it. Yeah, I don't know who Talia is, but she's uh. Well, did you not? Well, spoiler alert if anybody hasn't seen it. But Dark Knight Rises. Oh wait a minute, the daughter of Raja Ghul. Uh huh. Oh, her name was Talia. I didn't. I didn't remember that. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Well, I it, it, now this is Star Trek comic book review, but I do find it interesting. There's lots of Batman's background that they've used in the movies uh, from that came from the comic books. So I think that's great. You know, um, yeah, fantastic. I mean, in, in the first movie, Batman Begins, it's like 
Razagul, Al Ghul, whatever. I never heard of him before, you know, because I had been out of comic books for a while. So uh, it's cool finding out um, some of the genesis of some of these characters and ideas. Yep, I agree with you. I, I love that that Batman trilogy. Yeah, yeah, very good job leveraging uh, the existing storylines. Anyway, um, yeah, that's all I have to say about this issue. All right, cool. Same here. Looking forward to seeing how it ends. Yeah, me too. Hopefully that'll be next issue. Hopefully they don't go another three issues yeah. before oh, right. we get to the end. Yeah, exactly. But I am enjoying this. It doesn't seem... it. it, it I mean, obviously they are stretching it out. Uh, and yeah. aside from the artificial, oh, it's going to explode. Yeah, right. Eh, it didn't. We had seconds to spare. Yeah, we've been off yeah. screen this whole time. Exactly. <laughs> aside from that, I don't really have any big arguments. Well, I, I think the whole Keiko O'Brien thing was not, was not necessary. Uh, this is their next-gen swan song before they go off to Deep Space Nine. Perhaps. Perhaps. In our Elsewhere in Star Trek, uh, we're covering Next Generation episodes, uh, starting with Fistful of Datas. Now, that one I liked. Now, that, that one I liked. <laughs> I thought that was great with Worf. That hat he had on was horrible. It was funny. And then uh, Data's showing up with the poncho on and stuff, and it's like, that's great. A classic holodeck gone awry episode. Exactly. Right. Next up was the episode Quality of Life. Is that the one where... Is that the one where Loxana? You know, is that that whole, uh, you know, what do you do with the the old people episode? You're thinking of the Soylent Green episode where they eat the old people. Oh! (laughs) What? Oh, Oh, they... I didn't remember that part. No, I made that part up. That's that's not what they did. They just uh, disintegrated them, let them let them die with dignity or whatever. Exactly right. But they don't eat people. Okay, okay, that's good. But that's a different episode. This episode is the one where they find a little robot and Data thinks that it's sentient and goes out of his way, risks court martial and things like that to uh, save its life. Um, Remember that one? And I really should have prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it, man. Uh, next up is Chain of Command, part one and part two. Oh, that's the Jellicoe one. Okay. Right. Jellicoe, played by Ronnie Cox, kicks Picard out and takes over. <laughs> yeah, and he, he takes over the Enterprise because he thinks uh, Riker isn't doing the right thing. Right, yeah. And, and, and does he really actually really want to take over it long term? I can't remember the specifics on him taking over. And and Ronnie Cox, right? That's the actor's name? Right. He is so good at being a jerk. Yes, he plays a very good Dick Jones in RoboCop. Robo... Oh, well, yeah, he was a jerk in that, for example. Yeah, I was trying to make a joke there about his name in RoboCop. <laughs> there you go, Mr. Corporate. Yeah, and he was nasty in that. And also, um, he did a great job as the heavy in um, Total Recall. Wasn't he the bad guy in Total Recall? Right, the old one. Yeah, I think so. I think he was. You didn't see him until the end. but Makes sense, since both RoboCop and Total Recall were both directed by Paul Verhoeven. Exactly. He, <laughs> he, he, he gets the jerk face performance he wants out of Ronnie Cox. So let's keep on bringing him back. But he doesn't always play a jerk. Uh, he was the president of the United States in a little movie that you might have heard of called Captain America. Ah! <laughs> well, 
Yeah, that's a 1990s gem that not too many people have actually watched. Oh my god. Oh god. You you had me going there. You had me going there. I'm thinking, what? He wasn't in that movie. It's like, oh, oh my god, that one. Okay. Yeah, that one is is horrible. I tried to watch it uh, before the new one came out as a reminder, and I don't even think I finished through it. <laughs> I don't blame you. I do remember when it was being advertised a, a right a long time. The first Tim Burton Batman movie came out, and I was really excited for it to come out theatrically, and then it just went straight to video, if even that, uh, and it's pretty hard to find. Anyways, let's move on to the next episode. Yeah, let's. So the next episode this season was Ship in a Bottle. Ship in a Bottle. Diagnosing anomalies in the recreative Sherlock Holmes hologram program. Oh, this is where uh, Reg, Crewman Broccoli, discovers protected memory contains the archvillain's character. And Moriarty, who has become self-conscious and demands fulfillment of a recent promise by the crew that they would think up a way for him to leave the holodeck. Yeah. So this is a sequel to the first Holodeck Gone Awry episode. Right. It's nice that they brought back this storyline from season two. Right. So everybody had just forgotten about him. Yeah. And then until he until he forces the, the, the issue. Yeah, it was a good episode about uh, consequences of not following through with your promises. So that does us for this week. So come back next week when we covering issues 43 through 45 of the original series. Okay. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So am I. We're about to end our timeline before Star Trek VI. So I think 50, starting with 50, they start going back in time and kind of doing like little, you know, here's an episode from the first five-year mission. Here's an episode, Starfleet Academy days kind of thing. Uh-huh. Instead of trying to cram all their stories in between Star Trek V and Star Trek VI, which they mm-hmm. had up to that point. Right. So... I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, jumping around a little bit in time. Cool. It does sound good. All right. Well, hopefully everybody enjoyed this one. And uh, if you are listening and you're enjoying it, uh, write us. We, we do really enjoy getting letters from people that, you know, validate what we're doing. Yeah. Like one we got recently. Yeah, we did just get a new one. And uh, I don't have it up in front of me, but it was, it was nice, to, uh, nice to hear from somebody new. That's right. So keep Chris Turner, in fact. So, Chris, I hope you don't mind us mentioning your name, but thank you for the email. Yes, keep them coming. And, and what, what was the email address? Do we really want to give out everything? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm not saying the full address. I'm just saying it had the beginning the of it. It had Gorn in the title. Exactly. And the color. I thought that was good. That was funny. I liked it. <laughs> anybody, anybody <laughs> whose main email address... Uh, has the name Gorn in it. It's okay with me. <laughs> Hopefully you don't mind that we just uh, outed you. What? what? <laughs> they might not know he's a Star Trek fan. <laughs> <laughs> with, it, with, it, with an email address as he has, I don't think he minds. Uh, Alright, well hopefully he won't. And hopefully he'll get a <laughs> kick out of us talking about him. Yeah, so, appreciate it. Alright, take care everybody and talk to you next week. On the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. 
All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at starttcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic, second name book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.